Welcome everyone to another episode and happy fall of uh happy fall. Another episode of the <laughs> of Dizzy. Um and happy fall to all the students and all the professors out there that are going back and starting their um, fall semesters at the universities or wherever you wherever you are. Um, this is actually a very uh, special episode for me personally. Um, the person that we're going to introduce has been one of the most influential pers- uh, people in my lives in my life, and um, you know I have the the honor and privilege of introducing Dr. Aaron Piker. Um, a professor at uh, James Madison University, and that's where actually I did my PhD program. So Dr. Piker was my uh, PhD advisor and continues to um, not only have an influence on me, but, um, you know, it continues to be a, an expert and leader in this field. So thank you so much, Aaron, for your uh, availability and, uh, you know, willingness to uh, be on our podcast, our small, you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, podcast here so thank you sure yeah I, I shared this with you earlier I don't listen to podcasts but when Daniel asks me to do something I'm always happy to work with yeah. him here we go yeah it's it's so nice to have you on and this season we've been trying to get the experts of the field and you are definitely top of our list so I'm so glad it worked out for everybody but um, it's been really cool we've we've learned a lot about people's motivations to get especially into this research. So I'd love to know a little bit of your background and what got you into the field of vestibular and kept you there. Yeah. So I mean, my, my background into audiology is not a straight path. I was not a CSD major. I hadn't heard of CSD. I hadn't heard of audiology. I was, um, neuropsych and linguistics. And so my plan was to go into neuroscience and study language in the brain. That's what I thought I was going to do. And I was, um, I was set to go into a grad program and I was meeting with my advisor. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, Daniel. And I was talking with her and then I was touring all of these labs and like my gut instinct just said, you don't belong here. This isn't right. And I was honestly kind of bored, um, which is a shame. I'm looking at all these amazing things I'll get to do in these amazing labs. And I just thought this is not what I need to do. So I took a year off and, um, some of my friends in linguistics were going into speech and they were like, try speech. And so I shadowed an SLP and I immediately knew, no, that was not it. And then they suggested, oh, go shadow an audiologist. That might be more your speed. And um, the first audiologist I shadowed was in Virginia Beach and they're doing vestibular assessments. They're doing a VNG. And um, I don't know if it was just the excitement of watching this thing. I had never seen it before. We were in this dark room. I'll also say we were on the coast. It was late summer. There was a hurricane brewing and there was just an air of excitement anyway. And everyone's talking about it. But I left there feeling excited and thinking, okay, audiology, that's what I'm going to do. Now, at this point, this is all I know of audiology is I know PNG. That didn't stop me, though. I applied to grad school. I started um, at Vanderbilt and I hated it. I did not like audiology. My first semester, I thought I'm, I'm going to drop out. That said, this is not the field for me. I was randomly assigned an advisor, and that was Gary Jacobson. Just arbitrary. He, he's who I was assigned to. So I set up a meeting with this person I don't know to tell them, I'm sorry, but I'm going to drop out. And the rest of the story is much shorter, as you can probably imagine. So I go to meet with him, and he's basically like, this is not all audiology. Let me show you what I do. Let me show you this side of audiology. 
And uh, I was hooked. That was it. I was excited. He was passionate about it. He got me excited about it. Um, I spent the rest of my AUD trying to do all the vestibular things I could do. If there was a paper, it was going to be a vestibular paper. If it was a presentation, I was going to make it vestibular. And sometime during my third year, I think it really set with me that I wasn't going to learn everything I wanted to know. My curiosity just kept going forward and forward and that I was going to need to go further. And so the PhD was a straightforward decision to see not even learn research, which is what you do with a PhD. I just wanted to learn about the vestibular system. I wanted a way to keep going on that track. So I stayed and, and did a PhD with Gary for the next four years after that. And and I've never been bored in my career. It's um, I often tell students my fear during my PhD was that I would run out of ideas. Like, how would I know what studies to do? And it is the exact opposite of that. I have too many thoughts and too many ideas. And it's about like clearing clearing the space and, and focusing on one or two things at a time. Yeah. That, I mean, talk about the butterfly effect. I mean, going and and doing this, um, you know, observation in on the East Coast, if it hadn't been a VNG that day, or if you hadn't been assigned to uh, randomly assigned to Dr. Jacobson, I mean, it's it's it, all of these little things kind of come into play. And it's just it, and here we are. So it's just crazy how these things work out. It, it really is crazy. Nothing was planned. It was almost like little serendipitous moments that happened along the way. I don't know where my life would have gone. I had um I am not as organized and planned as my students are now. Like I am amazed at how together their lives are in their 20s. And mine was a lot of just flowing through the air and seeing where I land. And um, I landed in Gary's office. And and really, he was influential to me and, and steering the direction I was going to go. But I definitely knew the stupid there was my interest early on. But I feel like you have a I'm always intrigued by individuals that don't come from a CSD background because many students who enter audiology, including myself, that's where we came through. So what do you feel like, or now like looking back on coming from maybe a non-traditional background, how do you think that benefited you or did it cause you to look at things differently as you're going through grad school or even now? So early on, it was, it was detrimental. My first semester, I was behind. I mean, everyone had knew how to do audiograms and I was struggling with peer testing because I thought I've never oh what are you doing we're x's and o's so early on it was tough not having that background I think as far as the you know extent of my career it's been a huge advantage you know I a lot of the vestibular work I do I come from thinking what do we do in visual neuroscience and what do we know about the visual system that we don't know about the auditory system that we definitely don't know about the vestibular system and having a more science-based background has been really helpful in that regard um reading through the literature outside of audiology which is really important for a lot of the research i do to to go beyond the ear so it's helpful to have a background that also goes beyond that um i think the hard part is trying to find this field if you're not csd i mean i just happen to also my degree in linguistics is not a degree I use often. Most people are surprised. They know I studied linguistics. I have no knack for languages or anything. But through that is where I met people who were going into speech. And it was through the speech pathologist who, as lovely as she was, I didn't like her job. But through her is how I found out about audiology. And so it's nice to have broad backgrounds coming in. I just don't know how people would find our field. Yeah. Without. I, 
I find that so interesting too. Like that's why I loved hearing your story because I know a lot of Daniel and I were both involved with student academy national leadership and it's a big push of how do we diversify our fields because I think it makes our research stronger. And I always am very intrigued by researchers that have different backgrounds because I just think you approach the research so much differently. Even if you don't notice all these big changes, I think that background plays in really strongly. So I was just curious. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, to, to sort of kind of pivot from this point, you know, you've done, you've done so much research in our field and you've been influential, especially in, in the VEMP world. And, um, you know, a lot of what we know about VEMPs, this comes from your, your research that you've done. Um, but, you know, do you mind talking a little bit about, you know, what is, what are some of your current interests? What are some of the research, uh, projects that you're, or directions that you, um, are currently involved in? Yeah. So, um, there's still VEMPs. Um, I can't escape VEMPs. <laughs> VEMPs are always there. I think I told you this, Daniel, after my dissertation, I swore I would never do VEMP study again. And when that was 12, 13 years ago, I'm still doing VEMP study. So I can talk about that, but I'll talk about some other other areas I'm working on now. So kind of a major area I'm looking at is um, perception, motion perception. And um, and then a new area that I've just started getting into is more um, sort of the patient experience and also the educational part how do we train vestibular audiologists and and not just train them how to technically do the things but to develop things like cognitive empathy effective empathy and understanding for this patients because i feel like our patients are so they're so important and they're so special and they come to us with a lot of needs and oftentimes um after seeing multiple people and a vestibular disorder is scary and it's it there's a lot of information online and a lot of it's confusing and so i take the that role very seriously in training students how to work with our patients beyond just understanding the tests you're doing but the effect it has so that's a whole other area but i'll go back to um psychophysics which daniel started with me on a few years ago um and i'm going to tie that into a larger study i'm doing now so i've got a, a five-year study i'm working with crystal riska on at duke university where um, her main area is looking at the association between hearing loss and falls, which is well established. It's not really something that's debated anymore. We know if you have hearing loss, you're at a risk for falls and that there's a dose dependence with that. What she's more interested in is what's causing this connection. What are the underlying mechanisms that are connecting the two? Is it, um, is it really um, a vestibular issue, an undiagnosed vestibular issue, or is it vestibular plus? And I guess I could say, is it non-vestibular, but I don't think it is. I feel like if you've got hearing loss, you probably have some age-related vestibular loss that's causing some of the, the physical balance issues in that. And so in working with her, she had come to me and said, you know what, I really want a perception piece. I don't want to just look at vestibular reflexes. I want to look at a bigger picture we work together on this so i wrote that portion of her grant and we'll be collecting data together and so what we're looking at what i'm looking at specifically is how do we um how do we scale our perception of motion if i increase the velocity do you sense that increase at the same rate that i increased it is it a one-to-one -one relationship or is it different um so we use a technique called magnitude estimates for that and I, I use a rotary chair and I use the yaw access. So it's nothing that's so complicated. It couldn't be implemented clinically at some point. It's pretty quick to do. And basically what we're 
finding is that there there is a relationship between the stimulus and your perception of the stimulus. Obviously, there is. In the lower frequencies where the vestibular system's not as sensitive, it's quite linear. So it's more of a one-to-one. If I increase the velocity this much, you felt the increase was that much. As we go up in frequency, we lose that. We go to more of a nonlinear function, and it's actually um, compressive. So as I increase the velocity, your sense of motion doesn't increase quite as much. We It gets further and further compressed as we go into areas where the vestibular system is more sensitive. And I think that alone is a fascinating finding. I would expect have nonlinearity in our system as most sensory systems are. And this is young, healthy people, and this is how they're perceiving this. So we're, we're extending that to look at age. We're extending it to look at fallers versus non-fallers. Um, I'm extending it into children which is a very interesting study that I've got some grad students working on now where we we lose some precision, we break it up a little bit, and they've got some animals. And so, you know, did you go as fast as a dog? Did you go as fast as a cheetah? Uh, my my seven-year-old is the consultant on this project, and she chose the animals, and we tested it on her, and um, she's giving us some good insights into how seven-year-olds are seeing this. Um, the other thing we're looking at is um, what's the... What's the functional implication of this? So my perception of motion is not within this normal range. What does that mean for me? Is it correlate with symptoms? If I have vestibular symptoms, does it correlate with my overall balance, my my gait, things like that? And that's where I think the stuff's going to start to get more relevant and more interesting. I can collect this information in less than 10 minutes. I don't yet know the what it's going to mean for functional applications and that's really the big question what does it mean for the whole person right that that is so fascinating um to me and you know we think like at this point in today's world we have all the technology to measure you know all 10 vestibular end organs and you know when we look at the hearing side of it you you spoke you um alluded to this a little bit where you know you have the vestibular research sort of or, you know, you have auditory research following a little bit behind vi- visual research and vestibular research following behind a little bit more of auditory research. And in the auditory world, I mean, we have our, the, the most useful tool that, that clinicians use is an audiogram and, okay. and that's, that's a perception of hearing. And so it's, 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 that's, that's really fascinating work that, that you're doing, looking at the perception of the vestibular system. That's incredible. But what's really cool is we're not normally um like conscious of that perception right that's the whole invisible disability of a vestibular disorder it's not something you see and if you ask someone what the vestibular system was doing at any given moment they would totally stare at you with like face and rightfully so um however if we ask you to be conscious of and we ask you you can and and most of the really interesting work in this area is is in threshold what's the smallest difference of motion you can detect in all axes of rotation um and I think that could have really cool implications for diagnostically what's happening inside of lesion. And I went a different direction. I'm more interested in, in the, the, the functional movement, the big movements, because patients don't report, one, one they never report that their BOR is not working. That is not a common symptom. But they also don't report small movements causing issues. It's usually larger movements. And that's where you've got oscillopsia or maybe... Um, trouble with um, postural stability, it's it's big movements. And so we study the perception of big movements. And um, 
yeah, it's it's cool. I, I think it's got potential to actually be something we can do clinically because it's fast. No, yeah. I, I I had a one grant where we we ran like fifty conditions and that only took like thirty minutes. And I would never do that in a patient, but we could do four or five conditions in probably five minutes or less. It's super fascinating. Yeah, I feel like we've Daniel and I have talked a lot about perception too, and I feel like this is such a huge area that has so much potential, and there's a million ways to go. Because I could even while you were explaining. You know, and looking at the falls population and just like how our perception changes as we age, I was like, oh, I bet you could probably have a different um, pattern for heightened perception type disorders. And then, you know, those that have reduced perception type disorders, like I bet there's patterns for all of those that could be diagnostically really helpful. Because I think one challenge that we are facing a lot of times in the clinic is people are coming with dizziness and our tests may not show anything. So our tests are missing something. They're not sensitive enough. Um, to something that the patient is experiencing. So that is super fascinating. And I can definitely see how that's going to be applicable to the patient and recommendations, hopefully. Yeah, I hope so. I think reflex testing is important, but it's a reflex. And it's a brainstem mediated reflex. And um, it'd be nice to have more tests that happen to central processing. And also, if we're trying to, to connect our testing with what the patient's reporting, patients are reporting what they're centrally perceiving. But like I said, no one no one reports on their reflexes. Um, it's the other stuff that the patients are coming to us with. And there's all kinds of things that could be subclinical that don't show up on our tests. And um, I've got some pilot data on some fallers, and their, um, their scaling of the oscillating stimulus is different. And... What it is, it's that that linearity we saw in the low frequencies continues up or becomes expansive. Whereas we move faster, their perception grew at a greater rate than I would expect, as opposed to our healthy ears where it was definitely nonlinear. So there seems to be a loss of linearity in their systems, which is also, oddly enough, very consistent with what happens in the auditory system where we yeah. lose linearity as we age and there's perceptual consequences to that. Yeah. It's almost like they're made up of the same thing material. <laughs> it's almost like it's all. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. So I know obviously we're still like very early in the research, but we have a lot of clinicians and students that listen to this podcast. So at this point right now with where we are, would you make any specific recommendations to that patient that's explain that's complaining of some of these things that are not being picked up by the tests that we're doing? Like, do you make any particular recommendations for this population? Not not based on this data, it's too early for clinic, but anytime a patient has a complaint, I try to add a functional measure. And, you know, can we can we check their gait? Can we do Romberg on film? Can we add something that sort of corroborates the symptoms, even if our reflexes aren't showing what we would expect? Which I think is a great piece of, you know, advice, because I think a lot of times when we learn to do the vestibular testing, we're very uh, tied to our specific tests and our codes. And I think it's really important you know, to try to push ourselves to be outside of that concrete area and we'll work in this gray area where we may not have a code, but it's yes. the best thing for right. the that we really address that complaint because it's right. not helpful to the patient or physician. If like, yeah, I mean, oh. exactly. And no, and that's, it speaks to, I mean, you know, we know how long these patients are waiting. We know how long, you know, how cumbersome the 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 healthcare system is or they're bouncing around. And by the time they get to you, they're looking for answers. And you know, they don't want to hear, you know, everything's normal and okay, now you go somewhere else. So to build in some of these more functional components are just so important for them. It's a more, more thorough assessment of the patient right. as a whole beyond beyond just their ear. Yeah. 
So talk to us. I know you had mentioned you're also doing some research about like vestibular training and teaching. This is something we've talked about a lot on the podcast because it's we have a lot of students who are always asking us like, how do I train better? How can I be better prepared? So what are kind of your thoughts as you've been diving into a little bit of that research? Oh, that's so that's new. And that's just it's an interest because I do so much vestibular education. You know, I've got undergrads, ADs and PhDs. So I see students at different different levels and with different needs. And so I could talk a little about PhD education, but I'm going to go back and talk more about AD education. And so a project I just started working with uh, Vita on is where we, we've got these video modules of patients talking about their experiences. And some of it's focused on um, their physical experience and some is their mind and some is, you know, their social experiences with the world. And I have a group of students who are watching the videos with me. And what we're doing right now is just brainstorming. What are we learning from these videos that we didn't know? And what's surprising to you? And the students are coming back saying, I had no idea. This was a humbling experience to watch this 15-minute video, to hear it from the patient's mouth, what this actually felt like, to hear their emotions, not just physically, what are your symptoms? Is it vertigo or is it unsteadiness? Do you have floral fullness or do you have tinnitus? They're hearing the patients really talk about this is how it impacted my life. And the the long-term goal is to basically do a study with students in different programs where half will watch the videos and half won't and will assess cognitive empathy, affective empathy. How are you better knowledgeable about the patient experience, but how comfortable are you now with what patients are experiencing? So you don't come in and go into... Um, for lack of a better word, like tech mode, where I'm going to check off this, check off this, check off this, and forget that this is a person in front of you. This might be a very scared person in front of you whose life is being impacted in ways that we don't understand. So I, I hope to add that into our regular education piece. And if I can show that it's effective, this would be something we would open up to to anyone to add into vestibular education outside of all the things you go through in your syllabus, we have like a whole day where we talk about, okay, who are these patients? What are what are the patients experiencing and how can we help address that? And this, some of it stemmed from a, a qualitative study I did. And I don't do qualitative. And this was also Daniel's fault that we did that qualitative study because <laughs> he wanted to and he was my student. But um, in the qualitative study, we asked patients a lot about what their experience was like. And so many on the positive side said the audiologist made a huge difference. And what they didn't say, but what I think is true is because you might have two to three hours with this person. That might be the longest they spend with any doctoral level profession across their vestibular journey to have that length of time. So we can use that time to really, really help the patient and and be more leaders in a multidisciplinary team about what does the patient need. Um, a lot of times it's not surgical and it's not medical. It's really something else that I think audiologists could work with. And training students to do that outside of go see 100 patients and come back and report to me is, is difficult to do without some sort of simulation, which I guess is the word I should have been using. So we're looking to create a sort of a simulation for education. That's a great so, so fascinating. And I think needed, like, I think in healthcare in general, everybody, like providers, it's known that we get desensitized, like the more patients you see. And I think for that patient, that is the biggest moment of their year or life or whatever. And for you, it's just another patient. So I think being able to keep that perspective 
And yeah, like we many times become counselors for the patient. They're feeling heard and seen for the first time. And so I think that is super fascinating and very impactful. Yeah. I mean, it takes, it takes the patient, it, it, it no longer puts the patient as just numbers. You know, what is, what is, what are the, what are the gains, phase and symmetry values of this uh, rotary chair? You know, how is this actually impacting the patient? So I think that's uh, definitely uh, just so invaluable for, for students to be learning that and then go out and field and, and practice it. Yeah, I hope so. And that's honestly, it's one of the cool things when you get to, I guess, I guess I'm mid-career now is you start off with this narrow dissertation and you're like, I'm physiology. And then you get to the point where you're tenured and you can like, you know what, I can explore all the things now. And I can look at these types of um, more social questions or scholarship of teaching and learning types of questions that, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I wouldn't have felt that comfortable going into that. So that is a, a newer area for me, though, I will say. I don't have a lot of experience in this. It's just a, a, a direction that my lab's going to go. I know. Well, so for, yeah. Uh, well, since we're talking about directions of things, mm-hmm. um, where, I mean, we always ask, um, you know, every every guest on the podcast just to kind of, you know, put it out there. Uh, we know that the vestibular community and research, you know, fast evolving changing all the time um you know as as an expert in this area where do you see uh the the vestibular field more specifically the audiology vestibular Mm -hmm. field um going um you know five ten years from now i hope that um we have more precise tools to assess vestibular function um so going back to the beginning of this where i was like in the visual system we can do all these things and in the auditory system we're a little bit behind we are way behind with vestibular and it's it's not anyone's fault. It's just such a complicated system to assess. And I hope that we we can get more precise tools. So I didn't talk about this, but there's a whole other area I do with VEMS where we're looking at physiology in a more detailed manner, where we're looking at things like nonlinearity in the system. We're looking at synchrony of the response, so things beyond amplitude and latency. So I hope there's more tools like that that get at um more of what's happening in the in the ear beyond our more gross measures, um, more perceptual measures, so um, stuff we've talked about, and also um, more just in general central testing. We really don't know what's going on. It's like the central vestibular system is this big black box. We know what goes in, and we sort of know what the patient's perceiving, but how is this being processed? When is it not being processed appropriately? Um, I don't want to use the term vestibular processing disorder because that's going to open up a Pandora's box. Mm-hmm. But there is definitely patients where we see absolutely beautiful peripheral reflexes and it is not. It is not being processed the way we'd expect. They're not feeling this the way one would expect. And I think that would be a good area to see the field go. And that would give us a more comprehensive view of what's happening. Um, like we do with other sensory systems where we even... Whether it's clinical or whether it's research, we can really tap into quite a bit more detail about human physiology and human vestibular physiology um, relative to other sensory systems is still a big mystery. And it's so interesting. Yeah, still, still one of my favorite projects to this day is that caloric perception study that we did. Um, That was fun. Yeah, yeah. And that really set off all of the psychophysics work because uh, the study Daniel was talking about, we looked at um, 
perception of the caloric stimulus in a very simple way. It was like, did you feel movement or did you not feel movement? Mm-hmm. And um, what we found at is um, it's somewhat related to the size of your caloric response to your sylvase eye velocity. However, it was more closely related to your age. And so as you got older, you were more likely to have normal nystagmus, a normal functioning VOR, but you didn't feel it. And then we went further. We found that those who were older and those who didn't feel it were more likely to fail conditions five and six on posturography. So there was a postural stability issue that was occurring. Um, after that, it became clear I needed a better way of measuring what it felt like. It can't be, um, does this caloric feel like anything to you? And so that's really what led to looking for a psychophysics measure that was um, that wasn't going to take you know three or four hours per person, and that was doable, and that was you know a big stimulus, a functional stimulus, and that's what led to the magnitude estimate series of studies that started when Daniel was here. That was a fun study. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a really, it's a cool time, I think, to be in vestibular world and vestibular audiology world because I feel like we are moving past the present or absence and we're looking at the spectrum of functionality and because I think we've realized that that's not enough for the patient. So everything you're describing, I think is super fascinating and I think it's going to be mean a lot more to our patients and also hopefully elevate our field to be a, a good resource for dizzy patients because I think that's also still can be a struggle in certain health systems of where an audiologist fits into this process. So I think all of the research you're doing is going to really elevate it. Great. Well, since we have a few, like quite a few students who are on this, any advice for students who are in the midst of school considering a, a career in vestibular, whether that's research or clinical? I guess um, first piece of advice would be to find a mentor by find someone who's doing what you find interesting or if you've done it before. Um, I don't think it's as hard to do, I don't think, as it seems. I feel like we're um, an open bunch. We're a small, a small group, but we're friendly. And I think everyone's really re- ready to share knowledge and to anyone who asks. So professional societies can help link students to to a mentor, but they also they could just ask. Just send send an email and ask to speak to someone. So I guess first is is find someone who's doing this already. And then second would be really seek out experiences. It could be research experience if you have access to that kind of lab or clinical experience. Because you don't you don't know it till you know it and you gotta be into it to understand it, I think. Um, third, I think it's really good to keep an open mind and stay curious because there's so much we don't know and there's so many directions we can go. And I feel like if students really trust what they're thinking, they might think they're blurting out something random but it could be like this special nugget of knowledge and no one's ever thought about before but their perspective changed things because the vestibular world is wide open for ideas and where could you go and how are you seeing this and so be open to that and willing to talk about it and um open to learning from your patients i think patients teach us so much and so many of my big research questions that take multiple experiments and a long time to get to stemmed from an experience with with a, a patient. Something a patient did, something a patient said, something that just stuck with me over time. Um, from more of a, a research perspective, um, if you're interested you know, in a PhD, you just have to go for it. And I think there's um, 
it's a humbling experience to learn how much you don't know. And I guess half the PhD is figuring out you don't know anything yet. And there's a reason they take so many years. Um, it, it takes a long time to learn to do research, but it, it just, it takes a long time to learn how to answer the big questions. And it'd be great if we had more people that wanted to answer the big questions. There's a lot of great clinical research and that can be done in a shorter time period. And I don't think you need a PhD to do that. Um, we do, do need more people who have the patience to do the study that takes five years to do that we're not going to collect in the next few months. And that's where we sort of end up pushing the field forward. But it's, it's a slow process. It takes patience. Uh, science just takes time. Um, so I don't even know if that was a number or advice for students, but yeah, good experience. Get a mentor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lot, lots of things. Um, probably just talking, talking with people, talking with you guys. They can talk to me. Finding someone they can speak with is step one. Yeah, I definitely agree. We're an open bunch. I feel like everybody that's been on here has been like, I'm willing to help. And I think that we all want to see the field push forward. And that is such a great point about we need more PhDs who are willing to do research in vestibular because I think research is really what moves our field forward. And uh, we all recognize the importance of that and hopefully can encourage students to take the leap and do that. So thank you for sharing so much. I mean, I'm going to have to like think about this conversation for a while because I feel like I've learned so many things and new thoughts I'm having in my head, but thank you for taking time. I know your time is very precious. So we really appreciate you hanging out with us for a while. And I know everyone will appreciate listening too. Yeah. Thank you so much, Aaron. We we just truly appreciate it. You continue to be a role model for me and just so many students out there. And so thanks again for, uh, for your time.